We started a series last week that's titled, You Say You Want a Revolution? And uh, we're, it's a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer. And uh, I've been loving um, this study and getting ready for these messages. And God has shown me some things I've never, ever seen uh, in this passage of Scripture. And so I'm excited about this. Would you stand with me and let's read our Scripture uh, for this morning together. Uh, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. This is God's word. You may be seated. Jesus' uh, teaching on prayer and his giving of a pattern for his disciples to follow, a pattern for prayer, which is the Lord's Prayer, was given as part of what we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount. And that's found in Matthew, Matthew's Gospel, specifically chapters 5 through 7. And I just want you to understand the context or the setting uh, for this teaching from Jesus to his disciples. Here in chapter 6, Jesus uh, laid down a warning in verse 1. Uh, and then Jesus applied the warning of verse 1 to three specific disciplines of the life of a Christian disciple. In verses 2 to 4, it's applied, first of all, to our giving to the needy. In verses 5 through 15, it informs our practice of prayer. And then in verses 16 through 18, it's applied to the discipline of fasting. Um, Each of those brief teachings or those brief applications of the warning that's given in verse 1 is followed uh, by the phrase, and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Our interest, of course, this morning is the manner in which the warning in verse 1 informs our prayer lives. So let's just briefly examine the principle in verse 1 there before we move on to consider the ways that Jesus applied it to the practice of prayer. In verse 1, again, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Uh, I grew up up in Bellingham, and I might be a little bit biased, but um, the section of Interstate 5 just south of Bellingham is, in my personal opinion, one of the most beautiful sections of Interstate 5 in all of the state of Washington. Uh, It's like a, a, a small pass through a range of hills covered with conifers and interspersed with deciduous trees. It's beautiful. Um, It's scenic in all four seasons of the year. But that stretch of the road can also be extremely dangerous. And if you're just a few miles south of Bellingham and you're 
approaching in the northbound lanes, you're going to see signs that say, uh, danger, falling rock. And uh, those signs are there for a reason. It's important to pay heed to those warnings because the rock that comes off of those rock walls can do serious damage to your vehicle. Uh, They can destroy your car. They can cause personal injury to anybody inside the car, maybe even death if you happen to hit one of those rocks that litters the road. Uh, It's not going to be your best day. The signs are there for a reason. When Jesus used the word beware in verse 1, he also did so for a reason. The word itself includes a call for our focused attention. It says, danger ahead. And I think Jesus wanted his hearers to understand that when we give in to the temptation to do the things that we should do as Christ followers, things like giving to the needy. When we give in to the temptation to do things that we should do in a manner in which we should not do them, that is, in a way that only and intentionally draws attention to ourselves. We've entered into a very real spiritual danger zone. That word seen in verse 1 is also revealing. It comes from the same Greek root word as our English word theater. And it means to be observed by an audience or by spectators. Jesus is saying, when it comes to conducting the Christian life and doing the things that Christians do, be very alert to the the danger of doing them to be noticed, to be observed as if you're on a stage. He's he's saying, in effect, get real. Cut the theatrics. Save the drama for your mama. He's speaking to the, the subtle and yet powerful temptation to practice Christian disciplines, even to express Christian love with a goal of drawing attention to ourselves impressing others with the visible show of the depth of our spirituality. The more terrible outcome, he says, is that if we want to play it that way, we will receive no reward from our Father who is in heaven. Now, understand that this is Jesus, God's Son, the second person of the triune God, speaking. And he's telling us that God... The Father rewards his children when they live in accordance with his will. But when we do the right things with the wrong motives, for the wrong ends, we forfeit those rewards. That is, when we do Christian things in ways that only bring honor to ourselves and our own reputations in the eyes of others and not to Christ. Jesus in a traditional rabbinical fashion applies this principle to three disciplines of the life of discipleship. As we saw, giving to the poor, prayer, fasting. But the principle can be applied to any and every area of life that Christ calls us to live, the the ministries that he calls us to fulfill. For example, we can teach and we can lead and we can serve in ways that... um, 
glorify ourselves, that draw attention to our talent, to our giftedness, our knowledge, to our passion, our compassion, how much we sacrifice for others in hopes that others will be impressed with us. But God sees our hearts. He sees our motives. And what we need to learn, and for most of us it takes a lifetime, is that we are really playing to an audience of one. He is, in the final analysis, the only one we need to please. He knows when we're serving in the sincerity of our hearts to honor him. He also knows when we're playing a role. When we are, in fact, being phony and fraudulent. So Jesus says, beware. Beware. In verse 5 then, Jesus introduces his teaching on prayer with the three-word phrase, when you pray. Would you say that with me? When you pray. Notice that it's not if you pray, it's when you pray. It may seem a small point, but as we observed last week, prayer is central to the Christian life. It's, it is the highest privilege, this side of heaven, of our adoption as children of God to come into his presence, to have a conversation with him. But it's also Again, as we saw last week, one of the most neglected privileges of the Christian life. Many today who identify as Christ followers have, in fact, given up on prayer as if it doesn't matter or if it's a, as if it's a useless investment of time and effort. But those three words, that phrase, when you pray, speaks loudly to the fact that Jesus expects his disciples, uh, those who bear his name, who, who claim to be patterning their lives after his, to pray, he expects us to pray. And in essence, those three words turn this expectation into something of a command so that to be negligent or deficient in prayer is to be disobedient. Someone said one time, a prayerless disciple is a contradiction in terms. So there can't be any true intimacy with God without prayer. There can be no spiritual growth without prayer. There can be no spiritual vitality without prayer. There can be no spiritual power for ministry and for evangelism without prayer. Good news is that it doesn't all depend on us or the words that we use. In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, we have this great promise that the Spirit helps us with our weakness. We don't know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself speaks to God for us, even begs God for us with deep feelings that words cannot explain. So as you come in prayer to God and you're, you're at a loss for words, understand that you, the form of your words in the final analysis doesn't matter. Because what the Holy Spirit does is he, he takes and he scans your heart and he hears your thoughts and he understands your motives. He understands your desires. And then he translates that to God. You come to God with, with longings, with, with emotions that are too deep to form words. And the Holy Spirit comes along and just interprets for you to God. What a great blessing that is. 
In verses 5 to 8 then, before teaching his disciples how to pray, he spent comparatively more time first teaching them how not to pray. First he tells them in verses 5 and 6, and when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And when, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. Now, it's interesting to me that that Jesus continues this theme from the world of theater by warning against praying like the hypocrites. I'd never before this past week connected the dots between the word seen and the word hypocrite. The word hypocrite is transliterated from the Greek word hypocrites. And in the ancient Greek world, the word was used of a stage actor uh, playing a role behind a mask. In that sense, a hypocrite was literally a two-faced person. Or more, sometimes on a Greek stage, one actor might play several roles, each time changing costumes and changing masks. And, And in time, the word came to describe a person who says one thing but does another or who seems to be one thing but is in fact quite another. Jesus doesn't pull any punches here. Having warned his disciples not to pray like the hypocrites, he proceeds with an unapologetic, unmistakable description of the Pharisees, an elite and exclusive Jewish sect with whom Jesus was always coming into conflict. Uh, There was nothing wrong with standing and praying in public. Standing, in fact, is the most described posture for prayer in in the entire Bible, not kneeling, standing. But standing to pray and standing to be seen praying are two very different things, aren't they? In Matthew 23, Jesus took the Pharisees to task for their hypocrisy. He said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. Well, what's a phylactery? (laughs) What is that? A phylactery is a small leather box that would contain passages of scripture written in Hebrew on parchment. Um, Jewish men would wear them on their foreheads and on their hands during morning prayers. They're also referred to as teflon. Um, That was done, is still done today by observant Jews in keeping with commandments given through Moses that are recorded in Deuteronomy 6 and 11. There was nothing wrong with wearing phylacteries. It was an act of obedience to what God had commanded. I thought that phylacteries were a thing of the past. A few years ago, Marcy and I had the privilege of 
traveling to Israel. And on the plane across the aisle from me was a man with a complete prayer shawl. And at some point in that very, very long flight, he strapped on his phylactery on his forehead, strapped it onto his wrist, pulled out the Torah and began davening as he read the scriptures and prayed. The fringes were fringes on the corners of their prayer shawls that symbolically reminded the Jews of the commandments of God. They were just a a symbolic reminder. When you saw the fringes, you were reminded of the commandments as they were instructed to do in Numbers 37. So fringes on prayer shawls are, are an act of obedience to God. But the Pharisees, here's what they did. They enlarged their phylacteries. (laughs) big old honking phylacteries on their foreheads and on their wrists. And they would lengthen the fringes on their shawls. And so other people would go, that's a super spiritual dude right there. Wow, man, I wish I I I was like him. Because look at that phylactery. That is a honking big phylactery. But the Pharisees would enlarge that in order to impress, to impress, to draw the attention of others. In verses 27 to 28 of Matthew 23, Jesus proceeded, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. In the latter part of Matthew chapter 6, verse 5, Jesus says of the Pharisees, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. In other words, they, they just got everything they're gonna get. Their reward is the impression they've made on others. One of the footnotes to Matthew 6 in the ESV study Bible put this matter so clearly. It reads, the tragic irony was that they had received their reward of public and professional acclaim, but that was all the reward they would ever receive. And such fleeting human adulation precludes satisfaction of the deep longings of people's hearts to stand approved by the Father who sees in secret. R.C. Sproul wrote regarding the prayer lives of the Pharisees, prayer for them was a business, something that was expected from people in their positions, and so they made a display of their piety. Well, that strikes close to home for me, people like me who lead in ministry. It's a deadly occupational hazard for pastors and missionaries, other church leaders, leaders of parachurch ministries. A friend of mine used to jokingly call me a professional holy man. And uh, he he was just playing when he did that, made me laugh. But uh, later, as I thought about the implications of of that title, it was rather sobering to me. I I don't ever want to have a spirituality that only ensures my continued employment. And yet we are the ones who lead the church in prayer. We're the ones most often asked to pray at church events and social gatherings. Because after all, we professional holy men and women have a hotline to God, don't we? we've, We've got the special phone. And we pray better than everyone else, right? 
wrong. And don't, in, don't misinterpret my meaning. I, I count it a privilege to lead others into the presence of God. It's a great privilege to do that. But, but when we ask someone to pray only because of their position, we're, dis- we're denying something that's really s- essential and central to the Christian life. The reality that each of us, regardless of who we are, has direct access to God through our high priest, Jesus Christ. And so when I'm in your home, and and I am open to invitations, but if I'm in your home, I I expect you as the head of the home to pray. I'm your guest. You pray. Nothing special about my prayer. I'm just a guy. And I, I, I love to pray, love to lead others in prayer, but I'm just a guy. Jesus told his disciples in verse 6, but when you pray, but when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't pray to impress others. That's what Jesus is saying. Go into your room and shut the door and avoid the temptation. I don't think Jesus meant that we would always go into a closet to pray. But I think he's saying, avoid the temptation. Uh, He's saying that our prayer should be personal and intimate and not done as a performance to impress others. Your heavenly father will see you in whatever that secret place is. And your father who sees in secret, Jesus says, will reward you. I don't know exactly what that means. God has all kinds of rewards for us. God said long ago to Samuel the prophet, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. God sees who we are on the inside. In prayer, we commune with God, heart to heart, mind to mind. Next, Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray like the Gentiles. What's a Gentile? A Gentile is, in those days, was anybody that wasn't a Jew. And so we're talking about people, the the word literally means those who don't know God. In its most frequent use. And so today we would say unbelievers or pagans, don't pray like them. When you pray, don't heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your father knows what you need before you ask him. I heard about a three-year-old little girl named Megan who loved to pray before family meals and and sometimes she'd get carried away and pray at length and occasionally her dad who happened to be a pastor would have to bring those lengthy prayers to an end and he did that by saying, amen, that's enough, Megan. And so one Sunday in church as her dad was praying at length, Megan stood up and said in a loud voice, amen, that's enough, daddy. I don't think that's quite what Jesus was doing here. I I think he was simply and intentionally drawing a stark contrast between pagan prayer and Christian prayer. He he characterized pagan prayer as a heaping up of, of empty phrases, of repetitious recitations of meaningless words like a mantra in hopes that they would be heard by their gods. 
And when you and I do that, we're being just like them. Mounting up words so as somehow to impress God. 1 Kings 18 records a confrontation on Mount Carmel between the prophet Elijah and 450, 450 prophets of a pagan god named Baal. We usually pronounce it Baal, so I'll leave it there today. The word means, the name, the title means Lord or Master. And it was really, this occasion was a showdown to demonstrate once and for all who was truly God, whether Yahweh, the God of Israel, or Baal. And the pagan prophets would go first in this showdown, and they, they, would lay, they laid down a, a bull on an altar, and, and they would call upon their god, Baal, to, to rain down fire on the altar and consume the sacrifice. And so they went first, and they started early in the morning. And so from morning to noon, it says, these 450 prophets were crying out. Think about how loud this is. 450 prophets of Baal crying out over and over again, Oh, Baal, answer us. Oh, Baal, answer us. But by noon, what had happened? Nothing. Nothing had happened. Uh, The only thing that happened is a few flies in the neighborhood came by and visited the bull. So at noon, Elijah began to mock them and taunt them. He said, you'll have to shout a little louder, for surely he is a god, right? He might be distracted. He might be daydreaming. He might be relieving himself. Or maybe he's away on a trip, or he's asleep, and he needs to be awakened. Wake him up! Knock yourselves out! And so they did. They yelled even louder, and they went so far as to begin cutting themselves with swords and spears until their blood was gushing out of them, and they kept on ranting and raving until evening, but their God never responded. No one answered. No one was paying attention. No one was there. And next it was Elijah's turn, and so he took 12 stones, one for each of the tribes of Israel. He built an altar. He butchered the bull. He laid down firewood. He laid the bull on that firewood. And then he ordered that trenches be dug all around, deep trenches all around the altar, and that they be filled with water. And next he ordered that all of it be doused with four large jars. When we talk about a jar, we're talking about something this large in those days. Four large jars. Jars of water poured out on the altar and on the bull and on the firewood and on the stones. And and after that, he ordered four more. And those were poured on. And after that, he ordered four more. And those were poured on until the water was filling the trenches. And finally, Elijah prayed a simple, direct prayer. O Lord... God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. What happened next finalized 
the matter. It wasn't a long, drawn-out process. Fire immediately rained down from heaven. And it says that the, that the fire that rained down from heaven consumed the wood and the sacrifice and the stones themselves and evaporated all of the water that had been poured out. And when all the people saw it, it says they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. So Jesus says, when you pray, you don't have to heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Jesus represents his father, our heavenly father, as the father who knows, the father who already knows, so that when we come to him in prayer, we can be simple and we can be direct. It is an affront to the living God when we relate to him as if he was a lifeless and impersonal pagan idol. Don't be like the pagans. Don't think that by assaulting the ears of God with lots of words and lots of prayers that that somehow you will be heard. Don't act as if prayer is an act of persuasion or a means of manipulating God in order to get what you want. I mean, after all, if, if God's will is perfect, why would you ever want him to persuade to give you your will, which is so imperfect, So relate to God as your living and loving heavenly Father who knows you so intimately and is so supremely wise that he already knows what you need before you ask. And when you do, you'll find freedom to let your words be few and simple and direct. I recently came across a story from a book by author Stephen Roy titled what God thinks when we fail. It's a fictional story about a young violinist who lived in London many years ago, and although he was a superb musician, he was deathly afraid of large crowds. So he avoided giving concerts. But after enduring criticism, public criticism, for his unwillingness to give concerts, he finally agreed to perform in the largest concert hall in all of London. And this young violinist came on the stage and he sat there alone on a stool. He put his violin under his chin and played for an hour and a half. No music in front of him, no orchestra behind him, no breaks, just an hour. Hour and a half of of absolutely beautiful violin music. And 10 minutes or so into the concert, The critics who had come and were sitting in the front rows put their pads down and just listened like everyone else, caught up in this amazing talent. And then after the performance, the crowd rose to its feet and just began applauding wildly, and they wouldn't stop. But this young violinist didn't acknowledge the applause. He just peered out into the audience as if he was looking for something or someone, and Finally, he found what he was looking for and relief came over his face and he began to acknowledge the cheers. 
Well, after the concert, the critics met this young violinist backstage and they said, you were wonderful. But we all have a question. Why did it take you so long to acknowledge the applause of the audience? And this young man took a deep breath and he answered, you know, I was really afraid of playing here. And yet this was something I knew I needed to do. Tonight, just before I came on stage, I received word that that my master teacher was going to be in the audience. And throughout the concert, I would look for him as I played, but I could never see his face. So after I finished playing, I started to look even more intently and I was so eager to find my teacher that I didn't even hear the applause. I just had to know what he thought of my playing. That was all that mattered. And finally, I found him high up in the balcony, clapping his hands, big smile across his face, cheering wildly. And after seeing him, I was finally able to relax. And I said to myself, if the master's pleased with what I've done, then everything else is okay. And here's what I want you to leave thinking about today. In the life of discipleship, if you're a follower of Jesus, in the, in the final analysis, it will not matter what anyone else has to say about your performance. Each of us plays to an audience of one. We live to hear him say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We could spend a a great deal of time talking about what Jesus meant when he said, your heavenly father will reward you. I don't know the answer to all of that. But here's what I do know, is that in the final analysis, our reward is God himself. He is now, he will be throughout all eternity. Jesus is warning his disciples about a Christian lifestyle that's only for show, to be seen and admired by others for our spirituality. That lifestyle opts for the rewards that people can give us now and forfeits the rewards that only God can give and that he will give now and throughout all eternity. So the decision that each of us needs to make is the decision to cultivate a real relationship with God, not one that's just for show. A relationship with the Father in heaven who already and always knows what you need. A Father who is himself your great reward. That relationship was made possible through the cross. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. God sent Jesus to solve our sin problem, to to die in our place as our sin bearer, and it's because of his sacrifice that satisfied our sin debt forever, that those who receive God's gift through personal faith in his son, Jesus, receive adoption 
as his children. We're going to talk more about that next week. I hope you'll come back as we, as we examine what Jesus meant when he taught his disciples to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. But you can receive Jesus as your Savior now today. Before you leave this morning, you can enter into a new relationship with God. You can enter into a new status as a child of the Heavenly Father. And if that's your desire this morning, I would invite you to come. As the band plays, I'm going to be standing here. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, if you'd like to be prayed for this morning, I would invite you to come because we would like to pray with you. Let's bow together. Our Father in heaven, holy is your name, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Lord, we pray that we would cultivate a relationship with you that is real and genuine, that we would never give in to the temptation to just impress others with with our spirituality, but that we would pray with sincerity, uh, heart to heart, knowing that you hear, knowing that you already know what we're going to say, knowing that you've already decided how you're going to answer, but you invite us to pray. Lord, help us to not give in to the temptation to be obsessed with the words that we speak or the number of words that we speak when we come to you in prayer, but just to come to you in the the genuineness and sincerity of our own hearts and lay before you our needs. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you hear and answer our prayers, that you long for us to come into your presence, that you desire to reward us, to bless us in so many ways. What a privilege it is to be a child of God. Lord, for those this morning who are standing on the edge of that decision. I pray that today might be the day that you grant them that gift of faith that leads to life, knowing that it's not joining a club or signing on some dotted line, but simply trusting and and putting the full weight of our, our dependence for eternity and the forgiveness of our sins on what Christ did at the cross as the full and final payment for it all. Thank you that's true that Jesus paid it all. Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Would you teach us more and more of what it means to have a real relationship with you through your son Christ? And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.